Hemlock Knots. Cracking the restoration's toughest subjects through rational, balanced analysis of source material. Today's episode, we're going to be doing an exclusive interview with Rob Fotheringham. Hi, Rob. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. You bet. I'm glad you're here. So um, many in our audience, they're aware of you. They've seen some of your videos on YouTube. So Rob is a, a YouTube channel operator. He's also an independent LDS researcher. And so he's provided a lot of good documentaries on his channel. I think six to date. Is that right? I think so. six so far with probably more to come. So, um, you know, Rob, a lot of people are curious in, in, in the Hemlock Knots community about who you are, what makes you tick. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, uh, I grew up in, in Utah and California, met my wife there after my mission. And we lived in Utah for the last 20 years. Uh, a few years ago, I was working, I was a director of product management at a software company in Salt Lake. And I was sitting at my desk in my cubicle and I was praying and I got the distinct impression that I was, that I would be working at the church within three months. And that was a strange prompting for me because uh, I'd never ever thought about, you know, working for the church like that in that capacity. So I got on the website and looked up a few jobs and I only knew one person that worked at the church. I had met someone at a product management training seminar, you know, previously. So I, uh, I contacted her and I said, Hey, are these good jobs? Are they working for good managers? And she said, if you're interested in working for the church, I know of a much better job than those. And within three weeks I was working at the church um, working on the team that released the first version of the church's mobile apps, gospel library, and LDS tools. And that's how I started working at the church. Um, while I was there, I, I saw things and learned things that opened my mind up to other possibilities. I was, I was probably, I was one of the most orthodox people that I knew. And, uh, certain, there were certain things that I had never considered before, and working at the church allowed me to consider those things. And that's eventually what led to the the research that ended up in the videos that ended up on my channel. Great. So when you started putting together those presentations, I guess there were presentations first, they became videos, right? Slides yes. and such. Did you start with the intention of starting a YouTube channel? And No, the... Um, the first couple or few of them were actually created as presentations that I presented to general authorities at the church. Um, Which ones? Uh, Do you remember what your first one the, was? I think the prophetic book of Mormon. Okay. Um, had a lot of that content. And then... Uh, there were also... There was also a specific conversation that I had with another general authority that was the beginning of the polygamy video where I had a lot of thoughts. I'd uh, tried to share them with some of my friends and family. My wife felt like they were apostate views and that I shouldn't be working at the church. And so I approached the general authority that was over the area I was working. And I said, I need to tell you about some things that I believe, you know, thinking that they might disqualify me from um, eligibility for church employment. And uh, I got partway through that list of things 
and he finished the list. He was aware of the main points uh, on this idea that polygamy might have been introduced to the church by Brigham and not Joseph. And he um, indicated that he he was aware of and um, agreed with some of them. And that eventually, uh, the, the, the polygamy video really came from the presentation I put together to try to explain to my wife the things I'd come across. Yeah. And that was, the, that was the impetus for that. What were you hoping that the general authority would conclude by showing them these things? Oh, I was just trying to check the box with my wife to say, hey, I told him I believe these things. And either he told me I, I couldn't work at the church or I could. But if he told me that I could, uh, you should stop. You should stop worrying so much about things. And he told me that he had no problem if I continued working at the church. In fact, he, he, he encouraged me to. How much, how much longer did you work for the church after you'd start to put together these presentations? Oh, I would say years. Okay. And you worked for the church, according to your LinkedIn profile, I think it was nine years, give or take. Yeah. Nine years and some odd months, right? Yes. Okay. Um, can you walk us through from the beginning, your first day working for the church to your last day, what, what you learned and, and what changed for you as far as your outlook? So I think that one of the first lessons I learned was about church culture, about LDS culture and about the role of general authorities in that. And it was different than what I had supposed. So when I was at the church, projects get funded and employees are responsible for carrying out those projects, executing them. And uh, when people want to do things in an organization, whether it's to improve or change the organization, whether it's to create a piece of media, to create a product, an app, um, a manual, People need to get buy-in from other people to be able to do that. And when people, and these are church employees I'm talking about, are jostling for power, position, to to get what they want done, um, and all these people are working at the church, it wasn't uncommon for employees to talk about how they they wanted to pursue a certain direction because they had prayed about it and gotten an answer. And having received an answer, felt like they had some type of, you know, moral superiority in the argument or the, the conflict or the who's going to win in terms of which direction we go down. And, and that was, um, that was interesting because when both sides think that they're right, you have to ask a couple of questions. You know, they could both be wrong, but they couldn't both be right. And, right. um, when, you have an organization that at the top of that hierarchy are general authorities. It wasn't uncommon for people to play what we referred to colloquially as general authority poker, which someone says, well, I want to do this thing. Well, why do you want to do it? Well, Elder, and I'll just make up a name, Elder Bednar said he wanted this in a meeting. And someone will say, oh, well, I, I only have a, a first quorum of the 70 members, so I guess I lose. Or, well, <laughs> um, mine, Elder Oaks wanted mine, right? And so, so you have Trump this question card. of trying yeah. to do it. And this had nothing to do with the general authorities. This had everything to do with people trying to find any justification that they could muster for their idea. And when you realize that people were willing to invoke the name of a general authority to get what they wanted and that the general authorities didn't have anything to do with the conflict, I'm sure if they were in the same room, they would have been able to say, oh yeah, let's just do this. It's no problem, right? Right. You realized that like, like epistemologically, how you know what you know, when you revert to authoritarian um, 
proofs or when, when you trust authority, eventually those um, authoritarian claims will come into conflict with each other. And each of us has to decide for ourselves what then is truth. If there is conflict, if both of you play a queen, if both of you play um, an elder so-and-so, then how are you going to figure out what's right? Right. So that, that's, that, that was a beginning piece in it. And realizing that it wasn't the general authorities that were perpetuating this. It was the, the actual employees. Um, there were other things, too. Uh, we were working on um, an anti-pornography website when I worked in the welfare department. So I started off in, the, in, make, in the, making apps. And uh, I was a manager in that area. And then I moved uh, to do product management in the welfare department. And we were working on different products. One was this anti-pornography website. And the idea came up to ask President Monson if he could provide a little um, video piece, you know, to encourage people that were coming to try to overcome this addiction or problem. And so my, uh, my boss called the office of the first presidency to ask if that might be possible. And someone told him that, they hadn't uh, been allowing President Monson to do unscripted video pieces for uh, several years. And I, I think it was you know, fairly common knowledge. There was a Gila Valley Temple dedication where he said some things. He repeated himself. And that's what they said. You know, he sometimes repeats himself right. and things like that. And I think that's, you know, for any of us that have friends or parents that are older, that's not uncommon. Um, I'll be talking with my with my brothers and I'll say something about the past and I'll say, Rob, that's not the way it happened. And you know, when they both agree that I misremembered this thing, you know, I'm not, this isn't in any way an accusation. It's just that happens when you get older, you start to memory sometimes Correct. it gets harder. But the, the, the interesting thing for me was uh, I told a friend that a very orthodox LDS person, that story, and they refused to believe it. They said, basically you are maligning the brethren this, you know, this couldn't be true. And I think that the prospect that there was some, you know, group controlling the president of the church, when they were just saying, no, we don't, you know, we don't schedule video vignettes. Um, the reaction was what was most interesting to me, that this was, that this was somehow um, evil speaking of the Lord's anointed. When there was, I was simply repeating a story that I'd been told. But the reaction taught me something that there were certain things that we as Orthodox members of the church were considered or were supposed to not consider, not to think about and not be able to deal with. To me, that doesn't cause me any concern or doesn't disrupt my faith in any way, but for some people it does. Um, so those reactions um, were interesting uh, to me. I also had um, uh, someone I became friends with that uh, was higher than I was in the church hierarchy, or in the, I said the church employment hierarchy. Sure. They were a director level person. And a good person. This person had made a bunch of money working for himself outside the church and then had come to church employment. And he confided in me that he had come to work at the church for to have FaceTime with the brethren. And I appreciated you know, his willingness to share that. Um, you know, it could be kind of embarrassing, but what he said to me was FaceTime with the brethren was like an opiate, something that he felt drawn to and attracted to. Oh, interesting. And perhaps addicted to. 
Right. I think that was, that was what he implied by using the opiate metaphor. Um, and I realized that there was a propensity in LDS culture to idolize church leaders and that this wasn't something that LDS leaders perpetuated or required or fomented. This Dem- was demanded it even yes. probably not, right? No, no, the people, the general authorities that I interacted with, they were what we would all consider good people, uh, often very humble that were not looking for limelight. We're not looking for followers. Um, but members of the church were putting them on a pedestal. And um, that's something that I attribute to LDS culture. And so one of the questions that lodged in me was, where did that come from? Where did that start? Is that something intrinsic to our you know, capitalistic, hierarchically oriented um, culture, broadly speaking, or is that something that's um, you know, unique yeah. to LDS culture? Could be just human nature or a mix of all of the above, right? Yeah, I think you're right. In all of your time there, Rob, did you ever see that notion of worshiping the brethren or sort of putting them on a pedestal? Did you ever see that challenged by any of the leadership? The, did, I did see it Did you ever try to put that down, the notion of, hey, don't, don't put these people up. Yes. They're just guys, you know. I, I only really <clears throat> ever interacted with members of the 70. Okay. But I saw them at times making specific, concerted efforts to dispel that notion amongst people, right? To say, hey, you know, I'm just like you. And this isn't me just trying to be down to earth. Like, really, I am just like you. And, and you know, you shouldn't think of our opinions as anything more than just the opinions of a person. So I did see uh, members of the 70 try to do that. Good. Um, and that was... Um, when I realized that this was, this was being driven by these church employees, because from a church employee perspective, it makes it easier to answer questions, to get things done, to establish priorities. If you resort to those types of rules, it just, it facilitates things. Yeah. So that was, that was something important that I learned. Good. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, you worked on the mobile app, right? The gospel library, uh-huh, the mobile apps. Yeah. Uh, the website as well. Um, or is that a different certain, department? Certain websites okay. in the welfare department, um, very specific ones. How, how much control did you or your department, your peers, have in regards to what got published and what didn't, content-wise? So um, I would say there was a, uh, a transition that happened while I was there. Initially, each department had effectively discretion to put whatever they wanted on their websites. Now, if there was something that was egregious or there was an error that had yeah. been posted, then someone would let someone know and they'd take it down. But you had church employees that they were managed ultimately by general authorities, but they put whatever they wanted to on the website, basically. So a department manager, a director would be responsible for something. The people that worked for him, they would post and update things. Would there be approval processes? Yes, where from time to time, maybe new things um, would be run past a managing director, which is below a general authority level. Um, but largely the departments had discretion. That shifted. There was a movement where toward um, approval basically by the, the correlation department, 
where they began to control um, the approval of projects. They like research had to be done to justify the creation of a website before a department could put it up. And there was also review of content that hadn't occurred previously where you had to get uh, some other church employees um, permission before you could post certain things. So that, that was a, gotcha. that was a transition that happened yeah. during the nine plus years, nine years I was there. Okay. Were there any strange areas of red tape as far as what content you guys couldn't include? For example, I've noticed when I pull up my gospel library app, conference talk go back to, I think, 1970, give or yeah. take. Nothing before that. There's no journal of discourses. There's no teaching to the prophet Joseph Smith type stuff in its raw form, right? Mm-hmm. Was, there, was there established guidelines that, that were clearly out of bounds as far as what content volumes you could and could not include in the app? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think... <clears throat> Um, if I remember correctly, on the general conference side of things, it was a function of what had been digitized. Um, you know, there are certain file formats that certain things have been stored in, and so it's easy to go back to a certain time. Um, on the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, that one fell into a different camp because I can't remember now if it was lectures on faith or teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. It, was prob- it may have been both. So when I was uh, working on the Gospel Library, people would write in and ask questions. And I remember we technically were executing this product for what was called at the time the curriculum department. And there was a fellow there that kind of supervised things. And I remember saying, hey, there have been some requests to add the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith to Gospel Library. Can we do that? And initially he talked about it being a a copyright issue where I think it was a Siegel book had... Uh, acquired the copyright. And I, I may be forgetting the details, right. um, but there was some type of copyright issue. And so I think I eventually approached someone at Siegel and said, hey, would it be okay if we published this? And I think we got past the, the potential copyright issue, which sounds funny because I don't remember at what point Siegel was acquired by Deseret Book. Um, but these entities would still operate individually and independently. Um, they, they had... Um, they were still tasked with profitability individually in some instances. Um, So it wasn't outlandish that there would be a copyright issue potentially. And the church was very concerned about, you know, not incurring any type of uh, trademark or copyright infringements. Whenever we used software libraries, we had to document those um, explicitly to say, Hey, this is an open source thing. We have the right to use it. So let's, let's be, let's be follow the rules precisely about that. No reason to generate any type of uh, liability. Of, um, but in regards to Journal of Discourses, for example, like those, okay, so, those so were the, general conference talks that go back to 1850s. Did oh, they have the rights to those? I, I never asked them about Journal of Discourses, but when I asked about teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, it falls into the same camp conceptually. Right. What one fellow told me eventually was, you know, we don't want to do teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith because there are some some things that are incorrect in there. And this was the time frame when they had, I think just come out with the um, teachings of the presidents of the church, the Joseph Smith edition. And part of what they had wanted to do, and I don't know uh, how wide widely known this was, was to, by, was by coming up with a new version of a bunch of Joseph Smith content, kind of help people move away from teachings of the prophet. Are you Joseph referring Smith. to the, the priesthood manual, so yes. to speak, the Sunday's yes. curriculum? Because okay. when I went on my mission, I got, I, there was a four-book uh, set that I took with me, which was Jesus the Christ, Articles of Faith, Marvelous Work and Wonder, yep. and Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. It was the first time I ever read Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. 
I, I, I was disappointed that the direction uh, was, no, we're not going to include teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith in Gospel Library because we have these new ones that are included. And that was maybe my first introduction to uh, an attempt to, and I didn't think of it as you know, bad necessarily. I, I would, if it was up to me, I would have put teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith in there. Sure. Um, at one point, I, I stuck the Johnny Lingo video in there. Right, because we got a hold of it, we found it, um, and it was never. A, that's an example of me as a yeah. church employee just finding something and putting it up there. And eventually, that was removed and put in some different app. But the um, the point is, is that they had someone had intentionally made the decision um, to not put teaching the prophet Joseph Smith in because there were some things that made some people uncomfortable. Okay, so let's talk about the YouTube channel and the. In- you know, the conception of that idea, right? At what point did you think I need to sign up for a YouTube account and get this presentation recorded? You know, talk to us about how that started in your mind. Um, I, I had, I was aware of the research that had been done about people leaving the church and about how people were leaving the church. There was a spectrum of reasons, kind of the four or five big ones, but the biggest of those by far was Joseph Smith's polygamy, polyandry, and pedophilia. Yeah. And I have a firm testimony of the Book of Mormon. I have a firm testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith. And it was disheartening to me that people would be losing their faith because of, information perpetuated um, by the church that I thought might not be true about Joseph's involvement in polygamy. And it was in an attempt to try to give those people an option ideologically to say, guess what? Um, This all or nothing mentality, which is perpetuated by our, our tendency as a church to talk about ourselves as being members of the only true church, you know, when you believe, when you find chinks in the armor of the only true church, you tend to think that it's all false. And I wanted to give people an option that said that may not be the only, um, the only recourse. And what you think happened may not have happened. And at least consider the evidence of this other path before you abandon your faith in God, because LDS people are more likely to become agnostic than people that leave any other Christian sect. People that become disenchanted with other Christian sects go to another Christian sect. Right. Um, but LDS people find a new pastor or, you know, whatever it is. Disproportionately <clears throat> embrace um, agnosticism and even atheism. Right. Um, in response to like the disappointment uh, the, and uh, the, the betrayal they feel by the church when they find things that they previously had not been told about sure. in Sunday school. Yeah. And so as a missionary, you served a mission, it sounds like as well. I went to Peru library. in the late 80s. Peru. Okay. Um, I, I specifically remember strategizing as a missionary, not that this is the church fault per se, but <clears throat> you know, as elders, <clears throat> we had to work with investigators through a, a concept, excuse me, linked concepts. Mm-hmm. If the book of Mormon's true. Yes. What does that mean about Joseph Smith? Right. <clears throat> and if Joseph Smith was a true prophet, what does that mean about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Yeah. And if the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true and living church, what does that mean about Gordon B. Hinckley? 
right? There was this chain of logic. Chain implications. Would, it would, yeah. And what does that mean? That God still speaks today, right? We would take the, the yeah. chain all the way back to God and the existence of a God. But you're right. If, if one, of those, one of those chains, you know, the links in the chain gets broken or disrupted, right? The whole thing, like a house of cards, sometimes comes falling down, right? Um, and so... You know, for hemlock knots, I can speak for hemlock knots. I, I want people to keep the baby. You can throw out the bathwater all you want because it's dirty and it's murky. We mm-hmm. understand. But there's a baby inside that bathtub that's worth keeping. And that, that to us is Book of Mormon, you know, some aspects of Joseph Smith's teachings, if they're reliable. So yes. what is it that you're, you're hoping that people will hold on to, even though they can go through the difficult videos, such as Brigham versus Joseph, the originator of polygamy, right? What do you want them to keep at the end of that? That's good, in your opinion. I believe that Joseph Smith was who he claimed to be. I believe he was a prophet of God. And I think that Brigham introduced several things to the church. All of the major doctrinal innovations that Brigham brought to the church have since been um, reversed or disavowed. Can we talk about that list? Yeah. So plural marriage, easily the biggest. Blacks and the priesthood. Um, reversed. Reversed. And disavowed, right, as racist. Right. I remember um, we, my companion and I were going home teaching, and we were visiting with a lady in our ward. And right after the Brigham and Blacks and the priesthood thing came out, she said, man, they really threw Brigham under the bus. Right? And... Um, <laughs> There, there are others. There's, there's blood atonement. Gone. We don't well, practice not that. just gone, but really not talked about. What about Adam God? That's the other one, right? So those are council, the, council of fifty. So United Order. I mean, he did a lot of things in Utah that don't exist anymore, right? Yeah. So Council of Fifty is super interesting because it appears that, I mean, from my perspective, there's evidence that Joseph initiated that prior to his death to mean something completely different than what Brigham turned it into. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that what's fascinating is when people talk about the keys being rolled off of Joseph's shoulders onto the 12, most people have no idea that that quote, um, if it is accurate, was delivered to the council of 50, um, of which some were apostles, Right. The, I don't know how many of the 12, I think all the apostles were members, but I don't know that they were all there in that meeting. So that wasn't a Thursday morning quorum of the 12 meeting that he rolled up. There were more people there than just the 12, right? <laughs> yes. And, and that changes the context materially. And so pretty quickly, um, I mean, one of the quotes from one of the members of the Council of 50 in Utah was basically um, 12 people are steamrolling 38. Right? It wasn't what it intended to be. And if it was the kingdom, um, Brig- it was clear that Brigham viewed himself as being in charge of the kingdom. And this was simply something that fit within the historical... Con- Brigham pretty consistently took things that Joseph had done and morphed them into whatever he needed th- them to be. And then he had the, the, the seal of approval of Joseph on them, even if they weren't anything close to functionally what Joseph had originally established. So that, that, that's my take on what happened with the Council of 50, for example. Sure, yeah. Um, but, but your point being that a lot of the things that 
Brigham Young initiated as president of the church, second president of the church, right? Third, including Hiram, but... Well, yeah, which is part of the pattern, let's not, right? Let's not leave. Yeah. <laughs> let's take that out of the record, right? So you're, you're seeing stuff like, okay, Brigham Young implemented a lot of things. We listed at least six just now. Today, in today's church, they don't exist anymore. No. What happened? Why? I think of the church having gone through a process of, you know, 130-year process of purification post-Brigham Young as they slowly, for different reasons, started to throw off these things that he had brought in, these false doctrines. And, you know, emotionally, this was... My, my, we grew up, uh, six kids in my family, four boys. We grew up playing sports all the time. My dad had played uh, basketball and baseball at BYU. And we were huge BYU fans. You know, we would, we would uh, from Salt Lake, we would go down to the games. We would get in sleeping bags and drink hot apple cider and do anything we could to stay warm. It was BYU football was um, as much a part of our religion as uh, a lot of other aspects of Mormon Congratulations, culture. by the way, on the recent win. So long overdue, right? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> go ahead. It was being willing to consider that Brigham Young wasn't who I thought he was, was emotionally for me attached to all of the good feelings I had of uh, the good times and good things and, you know, positive aspects of having gone to BYU for eight years um, and, and meeting my, and dating my, really starting to date my wife there. Um, and to court her. So being able to extract those things from each other and say, Hey, I care about truth more than anything else. And I think that's when we say the glory of God is intelligence. In other words, light and truth. And that truth is knowledge of things as they really are, really were, and really are to come. I don't think it's possible for me to be a dedicated true disciple of Jesus Christ and um, and not be interested in what really happened. Yeah. So let me let me ask a question from our audience on audience on Hemlock Knots. Some of the some of these are user submitted questions for you. So here's one: um, Do you think the church will ever be more transparent or honest about issues with church history? Why or why not? Hmm. So I, I think that's an interesting question. I think the first question that that we have to answer to be able to answer the question is what is the church because the church is is it um an institution of you know 16 million people with maybe three to four million active uh members yes is it um a set of unwritten cultural rules um that members abide by and that shape their lives yes it is is it the hierarchy that controls, you know, that's transient, which will be different in 30 years than it is today, but that controls the structure and the rules and the messaging. Yes, it's that too. So what do you mean by the church? Because you can look back at the specific instances, uh, probably best described in the Greg Prince book about um, the the writing of church history and um, Oh, I can't remember his name. Was who's the church historian? The only non-general authority to be the church historian. Um, Arrington. Yeah, Leonard Arrington. Sorry. You see different general authorities. Howard Hunter being completely in favor of opening things up in the church archives, and where uh, you know maybe 
like uh, Elder Benson and Elder Packer being less in favor of that. Right. Um, and, you know, I would say that like few general conference talks ha- impacted me as much as President Benson's talk on pride or his emphasis on the Book of Mormon, right? Uh, but as far as church history was concerned, there were certain inconvenient facts that that some preferred to 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 left um, unmolested. Right. So when you have one apostle working to open things up and others working to keep things shut down, it's not a question of the church doing something in unison. It's about individual people. So. The Joseph Smith Papers Project is a great example of the church as an institution. So whatever decisions went into that, ultimately the decision was made to release stuff that would make a lot of people uncomfortable, which allowed a lot of the research that I was able to do make to make it even possible. Right. So yeah. I think so in, in, in the conversation that I alluded to earlier with this friend of mine who was a general authority, um, about when we were talking about polygamy, my concern was that if it's true that Brigham introduced polygamy to the church, not doing everything that we could to look into that, that, that that's the most important thing I could think that the church could do. But from his perspective, he hadn't, he didn't say this, but he has no way to change that unless he's called to go be over that specific area and look into things. He's not going to have the ability to do anything about that. Right. Right. But my, my suggestion to him was that if we didn't do that as a church institutionally, that that, that belief, to that, from my perspective, is a false belief, will destroy the church. It, it, if, if, if not corrected, it will eventually destroy the church. Now, that's just my opinion. But so when we talk about the church being, if the church were institutionally always... Um, trying to protect themselves, we wouldn't have Joseph Smith Papers Project. We wouldn't have the period in the 70s when uh, Michael Quinn was able to do his research, when um, Leonard and the other church historians weren't able to, to do the important things that they did. But having that window now, we realize there has to be more yeah. that hasn't been disclosed. Do I anticipate in the future it will be? I do. Um, but I think it will be a function of... Uh, General, certain general authorities who have that propensity, that disposition to really want to know what happened, being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Do you know much about, I mean, being an employee you, you, for the church, you did have things like um, non-disclosure agreements and, and such. Um, Do you, do you think that general authorities and even members of the 12 and things have similar things that they're just, they, they cannot disclose them at general conference or they cannot, you know, write ensign articles about those topics? What are the out of bounds for, for the general authorities as far as what they can and can't address, right? General authorities often talk about things that other general authorities disagree with and you can't stop them at a state conference, Right. If there is a church publication, then someone can formally um, disagree with other people. But those state conferences is where things can be said, where you can't stop someone from saying something from the mic. Right. It's not, I don't think, the formal church preclusions 
or confidentiality agreements that keep people from doing that. I believe it's the culture that I don't want to, to do or say something that would harm the church. And um, I think that I think that that is enough to keep most people from, you know, do people talk about things amongst themselves in confidence? Sure. But it takes a, it takes a majority of whatever the governing council is over a certain area um, to be able to, to, to sway or change the church's approach to something, to disclose things. So I think that for the most part, it's general authorities that, don't consider that something might be possible because they believe that anything that discounts or discredits the church's traditional narrative is spiritual pornography. That's the way it's been set up. And they're, they're not interested. They're interested in helping people more faithfully follow the Savior. So I'm not going to deal with all that stuff that I don't think is true anyway. And that's, from my perspective, for most members and most general authorities— um, even though general authorities were increasingly the ones I interact, the few that I interacted with, they had to deal with these things because they had family members who were falling away or uh, other people within their area of ecclesiastical responsibility. Uh, but for most people, the inoculation comes from the culture, which says, don't touch those things. They aren't just not faith promoting, they're potentially faith damaging and you'll be better off not to deal with them. Yeah. Um, and I think that the day is coming where people will be less and less able to take that position. But that cultural belief is what uh, keeps most people from even digging into the possibility that things sure. may not be as they suppose. Yeah. And it's a very real um, thing to be nervous about. You know, when you speak openly, uh, you know, I've experienced this, you have probably as well. Um, do you have any reservations about speaking out with truthful items as, as far as your research because of the repercussions they might have? No. Why not? Um, I, I, I think I try to be realistic about the limitations of my understanding. And even in the Joseph and Brigham video, I mean, it's fair to say that the evidence that is available that supports the traditional narrative about Joseph Smith being a polygamist vastly outweighs anything I was able to accumulate and present um, to present the other side of things. From my perspective, I wasn't trying to be exhaustive. And I, I said, listen, let's be clear. There is, there is persuasive evidence on both sides to, to, to make the case for both sides. The question is, is the evidence trustworthy? That was, that was my point. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Are you nervous at all about your oh. YouTube channel becoming known to the brethren? No. Okay. No. Um, to your neighbors? Friends, ward members, do you have any reservations at all about what you're doing? No. If I'm wrong, better to get my ideas out there so someone can help me see how, where, where and how I'm wrong. Um, if there's truth in them, then it's the greatest service I could provide to those that I care about to say, hey, take a look at this. From my perspective, it bolsters my faith in the Savior and in what the prophet Joseph was doing and in the book of Mormon. Um, and I think that that help in that regard is more and more needed. Um, yeah. As members of the church have these crises of faith where they give up everything. Gotcha. 
That's great. Yeah, I think, I think the exploration of truth, you know, for any religion that claims that God is truth, he is the way, the truth, and the life, right, that Jesus, um, any exploration of that should be welcomed, I would imagine, you know, but are, are there topics that you have in, the, in your mind that you're yet to explore? Um, yeah, so I'm... What are your next videos looking like? Um, I'm doing one right now on DNC section 130. One of someone on a commenter on one of the videos said, Hey, it would be nice if you did one about blacks in the priesthood. Um, what really happened there? And, uh, I, I probably will end up doing something, uh, in that regard. Okay. Also, the book of Abraham is one that has challenged a lot of people's faith. And so, um, I, I, in the back of my mind, I plan on doing one there. Also on some of the things that bother people about the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Uh-huh. Um, thematically, these go along with things that say, hey, I want to try to help people uh, to increase their faith in the things that I believe are true about the Restoration. Um, and, and so those are the, the types of things I think about. Um, it's, just, it's just so hard to not focus on bringing unrelated things for me. Because I believe that's where uh, things change so materially. And I think that if the church has been throwing off the things that Brigham brought in for the last 130 years, um, it's a lot harder now to see things for what they are. Because so much of that has been swept aside right. and, uh, and ignored. Right. And, and people, you know, people who believe that the church might be whatever, struggling today or off track or not the same as it was in Joseph's day. There's quite a few of those out there. Um, some believe it happened during Joseph's lifetime, right? Very early on. Some people believe that at Brigham Young, things started to take a turn. We talked about the six things that he introduced mm-hmm. that, that aren't around anymore. Some people believe that, you know, Wilford Woodruff in the late 1800s, you know, the federal government came in and things got derailed a little bit there. Um, I guess what I'm asking is, what does it mean for people to to accept these challenges in church history and realize that our, our previous leaders might have been wrong about some issues? Do, does that affect the keys they have today? Does that affect the, the priesthood line of authority? Does that affect anything? Or is there a way for us to acknowledge these things without having to rage quit the church and, you know, throw it all out the window, right? I... I became friends with people while working at the church that ones that were more aware, I think of things that were going on that in some cases would, would express that they were only sticking around because of the keys. Basically that's the only thing left that the church has to offer because everything else has been, infused with the spirit of Babylon or, you know, taken over by the Gentile ways or whatever. And, uh, you know, there is, there is so much goodness in the church, in the people. There are so many true dedicated Christians. There's, um, I think it's easier to see outside of Utah. There's so much camaraderie and community and brotherhood outside. I, I say outside Utah because, when we lived in California and we lived in Michigan and in Nebraska for short periods of time after I finished school, the church played a different role in those places than it did uh, or that does for, or it has for us in Utah. Um, there is a lot of goodness in the church 
And I believe that any, any belief that I hold should be able to withstand scrutiny. Um, I think, you know, really un, unconsidered beliefs are, are ultimately dangerous. And I think that if someone came and presented to me information tomorrow to prove to me that I was wrong, um, I would welcome it. I really want to know the truth. How can I decide what I really want if I don't understand how things really are? Yeah, right. So um, from my perspective, some of the most, I would say, uh, maybe damning aspects of the videos are the things that I probably shared with the most general authorities. Right. And, um, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't imagine for a second that I'm right in everything that I believe. I, you know, I, I sense, and this is just my personal view of the world. I sense that there is, there are two kind of models of happiness that compete. And one says, Oh, happiness comes from ease and consumption. If I could just have a bunch of money, my life would be great, right? Um, I, I wouldn't have to work. I could just you know, do whatever I wanted to do. Um, ease and consumption. And I believe that's fundamentally the worldview that's perpetuated by Satan. The other side of it is, this is an opposite paradigm. And it says happiness doesn't come through ease. It doesn't come from, dis, uh, from consumption. It comes from growth. The only way you can continuously be happy is if you are continuously progressing and growing. And learning is intrinsic to growth. You can't grow without learning new things. And so the minute I say to myself, I know all truth. I've been to church for three years. I've, I am aware of all 72 correlation approved points. There was a room in the curriculum department when I started that had this big uh, list of the 72 approved topics of study on the wall when I started. And anyways, um, you realize, well, that's why you repeat everything every so many years, because you go through all these points and the lessons they've been made, and then you repeat and start over again. You think you have this, and it is a very um, defensible called ball of truth that the church puts forward. It said, this is the way things are. And all of the loose ends have been tied up neatly. And so it's easy to think as a missionary, do you remember getting to the point where you're like, I can answer anybody's question. It doesn't matter uh, yep. what question they can ask me. I can answer it. I'm invincible. Now, yeah. <laughs> and, and I can answer it with scriptures. I can back it up, even from the Bible, right? There was, a, there was power in that, in that getting to that point. And I realized now I used uh, fallacious logic. I said things that weren't true. I misinterpreted scripture to be able to do that. I, at the time, I thought it was all, I, I was on the up and up, right? Yeah. So... Once you accept the idea that your understanding of things may not be complete, from my perspective, it opens you up to a level of growth that makes happiness truly possible. I think that's why, as members of the church, we struggle a lot with um, being a highly medicated people, with being, um, we struggle with, with obesity. Right. Because if you're, if it's all about ease and consumption, yeah. you believe you have all the answers. What do you care about? You care about making your earthly life as comfortable as possible so you can sit through. And I believe this is one another unspoken cultural belief that enduring to the end has become, if I want to go to Celestial Kingdom, I have to sit through a bunch of boring meetings because I have the saving ordinances I've received, 
The only thing I have to do for the rest of my life is stay good with the church, and I've got the celestial kingdom locked up. And it leads to a very stagnating life that says, I just want my life to be as comfortable as possible. And so then what do I care about? I care about the gospel of blessings. I'm going to obey so I can get blessings so my life can be as comfortable as possible. And that does not lead to happiness. So, so this one belief that I already know all truth versus my view may not be complete, I believe that's the question that lies at the core between people that are um, happy and those that aren't. And I think it also is what unlocks people to be able to consider that their foundational beliefs about the LDS church um, may not be fully accurate. Interesting point. Um, so let me ask you the question, the hard question, which is, do you feel happier now with this line of studying independently, right? Observing things that are kind of, you know, should be in the cracks, so to speak. So are, do you feel closer to God because of what you're doing now? Do you feel more religious? Do you feel happier? I mean, what what's changed from you since you started this new project? I would say I feel... Uh, much less religious, but far more spiritual. Okay. I also feel way more connected to God. How so? When I realized that, so I, in trying to keep all the commandments, I, I could, I could force myself to do that. I could pretend that I was a better person than I was because I wouldn't, I wasn't willing to admit certain things about myself. Um, I finally realized that I am wholly and completely dependent upon the Lord for all goodness in my life. Rather than thinking that I could have more faith by just trying harder, or I could be more charitable by doing more service, right? I couldn't change my heart that I didn't want to be at the service project. Um, I couldn't change my heart that I resented doing home teaching when I felt like I was an imposition on those people. I was imposing upon them um, rather than that they actually wanted me to be there. I realized that until, I guess the turning point for me was when I realized that I wanted to feel God's love in my life more than I wanted anything else. Until I reached that point, I was... I think uh, kicking against the pricks, I was forcing myself. It was hard when I realized I wanted God's love more than anything else. Then he changed my heart and changed my desires. And then I could actually serve someone in love because it wasn't um, contrived. It wasn't forced. I wasn't doing it so people would think I was good. So I would think I was good. It was because, so when I, when I, I saw God starting to change my desires, I knew that the power of God was working in my life. And um, all of these things, this understanding, this openness, has all, has all come as part of the same process. So I can't really you know, distinguish and say, well, this part happened because of this and that, that yeah. part happened because it's all been part of the same um, recognition that I was wholly dependent upon God and that I did not understand things as they really were. Awesome. What, what message would you have if you, if I could wave a magic wand 
right? And you were standing up at the next general conference or you were the, you know, if you were made the president or, you know, if, if you had the ability to influence real change in the Latter-day Saints that you observe today, your friends, your neighbors, the people you care about, right? In your community, what message would you have for them? If you could pick a 20-minute talk to give, right? All eyes on you. They'd listen to it. Things are not as you think they are, but the gospel is more true than you think it is. And to me, the, the things <clears throat> that we've talked about, the things we discuss, what makes more sense that God would have a prophet that lied and and solicited teenage girls and had 40 wives or one that was faithful to his wife and didn't lie and was honest and trustworthy. To me, it makes a lot more sense that God would call someone trustworthy and that he wouldn't create a moral code that was dependent upon one's hierarchical position in an institution. Um, to me, the, the challenge that, that we face as well, I say members of the church, but I also say true Christians everywhere is how is Zion going to come about? That's the next milestone that sits between us and the Lord coming. It, the scriptures are clear that it will happen. It's going to occur. Um, I don't, I don't anticipate that the church will have um, any meaningful role in that. I believe that God will orchestrate that through um his angels, his messengers, that he will send to do that. And I think that that's the next thing that we need to look at as, as true followers of Christ is how do I become a Zion-like person in my heart, in my family? The, my, my view of the role of the church has changed where I think of, I think what matters most is a person or a couple. And I, I think that any keys that persist are possessed by a husband and wife as they start a family and they ask themselves, how can we use what the church offers to help us create the Zion home and then the Zion community that we want to be a part of? And if there are aspects of the church that they want to hire to, to do those jobs for them, that's it's, the church in service of the family and not the reverse that I think will have to be the case for, um, for the things that are required for Zion to happen. If that makes any sense. Yeah. From all your studies, what, what do you think prevented Zion from being established in the 1830s when they first tried? Well, I think the Lord's pretty clear in section 101 and section 104. It was, um, it was covetous, um, and evil desires, in 101 and then in 104, he's pretty explicit about it again. He says, you guys will not share the abundance that I've given you with the poor people. And that this is where I feel like the, the doctrine of self-reliance is a false doctrine that has crept into the church. Yes. Because it's really hard ideologically to distinguish between the Lord's true commandment, which is to work. And the hard part is when people say, oh, I'm going to go to Zion. It's going to be so easy. I won't have to do stuff, right? I'll get, I'll, get, I'll get free education, free, free groceries. Yeah. When you accept at face value God's command to work every day by the sweat of our brow, there, that, that, that implies there's no retirement, right? That we're going to all work every day until we pass away. 
if I accept and embrace that commandment from God, the blessings of sufficiency that God promises his people are not individual, they are collective. So uh, in DNC 104, like verses uh, 13 through 18, it talks about how that's why Zion wasn't formed the first time. You guys wouldn't take the abundance that I gave you as a group and use it to help the individuals that were in need. Yeah. And I think that's the fundamental and primary um, lack. And the problem with that is, is when you have a, a church that doubles down on the doctrine of self-reliance, then those that do well are simply receiving blessings that they deserve for their righteousness. And if you, brother, who don't have enough, would just get it in gear um, and, 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 and follow these principles of self-reliance, then the Lord would bless you too. And I think that's, that's the primary ideological concern I have about what's, um, you know, this false doctrine yeah. that, that's it permeated the church that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And that has been taught even from, you know, today's leadership. Russell M. Nelson is on record of saying to some communities in Africa that, you know, generations and generations of um, not following the, the law of tithing has led to poverty. And the only way out of that is to, is to learn to use that law again, right? So... What um, what other teachings would you would you work to eradicate if you were king, so to speak? If you had that influence and that power to to influence, uh, you know, I besides those, none others come to mind. Okay, fair enough. Um, what is the most opposition you've had? Oh, you from your YouTube channel, I'll, I'll tell you. Oh, here's one that comes to mind. Sorry, okay. it took me a second. No, no worries. Um, home teaching. I would, um, when you look at where it got its start with the Reformation in 1856, 1857, and the ward or block teachers that Brigham would send out to ask these people these 20 questions, basically, to get in line. It was surveillance. Yeah. I would make home teaching entirely voluntary. I would say, brothers and sisters, no guilt, no pressure. Who wants home teachers? Because I, I mean... They had a, a line of little stationary products at Desert Book a few years ago, and it had uh, people who would say things like, "Oh, is that the home teacher's quick hide?" Like we don't. It, it, it's so much of a joke yeah. that uh, people view the visits as something that they put up with as being members of the church, where there's in in, in few instances very little value there. I would make it entirely optional. I would say, anyone who wants it, put your name on this list, and if you don't want it, it's totally fine. You're not a bad. No guilt. It just you don't have to do it. And what about those that don't want to home teach? And then how about those yeah. that want to do it? And I line up the people that want to do it with the people that want to receive it. Um, because, you know, there are a few things as gratifying as doing a home teaching visit where people, where you really feel like they wanted you there and you did something uh, that they liked. Like um, I had a companion a while ago and we would go visit some people. And we felt like they really liked us to have us there. They liked to visit. And I came back two hours later one time from a home teaching visit. And I, I walked in and my wife said, Rob, you know those people hate you, right? <laughs> and um, I, I think that uh, from our perspective, they, they, I thought they liked the visit. Um, but once again, matching, I think that's the, that's the high level direction I would say is anything that uses guilt or shame to get people to do things, I believe those two things are what Satan uses to get people to do stuff. And I think that when we realize that, that, um, that would, that would help us be, create a much, a much healthier culture. So you're vying for the platform of choice. Yeah. Agency. 
seems pretty radical. No, I say that sarcastically, but how much, how much trouble have you gotten into from this YouTube channel of yours? Oh, uh, none except with my wife. She, uh, we struggle with our differences of belief. Did the neighbors or ward members know about it? Um, only the ones that I've told about it specifically. Okay. I have a good friend who used to be the bishop and I, I sent him a link to one and he wrote back and, um, and told me that he, he, he already believed that uh, Joseph had not practiced polygamy. And I said, well, how did you come to that conclusion? He said, that's what the spirit indicates to me. And it's funny because my wife used this, this man as one of the most spiritual men in the ward, right? Very attuned to the spirit. Um, and, and so I didn't want to, you know, throw him under the bus and say, oh, by the way, he, he agrees with it. Um, but because each person has to figure that out sure. for themselves. Yeah. But so I, 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 I sent it out to a small group of people that were close friends and I didn't want to follow up with him and say, Hey, so do you believe it or not? And, and some of them have contacted me. I had an interesting situation. Uh, so I had two friends I went to lunch with um, a while ago, people I'd worked with for a long time. We were good friends. And um, they asked me what I was doing. I said, Oh, I just put this video out. This is what it's about. You guys should watch it. Um, and nothing. Didn't hear anything from it. A year later, one of them writes me and said, Rob, I just watched your video on Joseph and Brigham. It's really great. And I said, um, I said, why did you watch it? He said, oh, my wife told me about it. I said, do you remember that I told you about this a year ago when we had lunch? He said, I have no recollection. <laughs> and so that reinforced to me that there, um, there's the right time and place for every person. And if someone's not ready for something, the last thing I want to do is, is force it upon them. And in the right time and place, they will, they will watch it if, if the Lord directs them to watch it. Do you interact with your community? No. Do comments and no. Do you barely. want to? Why not? Um, I guess I was I was afraid of doing things that would attract attention to me, where people would say, "Oh, you're you got all this stuff. You're so great." And I I wanted to put it out there. I put my name on it because I didn't. I hate being afraid. Yeah. I didn't want to be afraid of 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 things. And I want once again, if if I'm wrong, I want to know that I'm wrong. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't apologize for anything that I've said. Um, and I would, if someone has a question about it, I'd love to talk to them about it and open up the scriptures and say, tell me what you think. Why do you think differently? That's great. Let's understand. Um, but no, there's, there's no fear about it. Okay. But if someone writes a comment or a question on YouTube and you don't, and you don't answer it, it's sometimes like I'm super busy work right sure. now. So there might be long periods of time where I don't look at it. I try to respond to people when I, they have questions that I have an answer to, but if I don't have a good answer, um, uh, I, I oftentimes haven't, haven't responded. What would you like them to do if they have a question about something that was in your, in your video? Do you, would you rather them just research it out themselves? And I, my intention is to get to, to answer all the comments on the videos uh, that seem like they're legitimate, like they're not someone just being right. cantankerous and trying to you know, pick a fight. <laughs> hey, or Rob, why are you a jerk? You yeah, know, skip just, those, right? <laughs> I must be someone that knows me, right? But I think I, I could probably do a better job doing that. I just have been, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything that would attract a following per se. I'm not saying that anyone thinks that way. I just, that was a concern I sure, had. So I yeah, think I, right. I've disengaged at a certain level because of that concern. Gotcha. I had to persuade you a little bit to even do this interview. That was like pulling teeth, but thank you for being here. Well, I'll tell you, I really appreciate getting to know you and, and even seeing that there are a few other people out there 
that have similar beliefs because for a long time, um, and still it feels like it can feel like they're, I'm, you know, I'm one in a thousand or one in 10,000. So I was I was, uh, I was yeah. glad to meet you yeah. and the other folks that we've met through the project. Yeah, it's been great. And we, we reached out to you, I think, because we recognized that, look, here's a guy who's he's doing some independent thinking in the scriptures and church history. And, and we appreciate that. But it does feel like a lonely world if someone's starting to first entertain these ideas of maybe things aren't as they seem. You know, a lot of people feel the pressure of I, I can't talk to my ward members or my bishop about this. I might get in trouble. Right. So. When you first started to put some of these pieces together, um, talk to us about how confident you felt in a support group that you could go to people and ask these questions that were hard. You mentioned that you, you know your wife wasn't entirely on board with some of your conclusions. Oh no, she's, that's okay. it's not that she's not entirely on board. She's entirely opposed to everything that I do in this regard. Okay, so that's not something you can talk about with pillow talk every night, right? No, <laughs> at least the details of it. No. So who, who did you? Who'd you go to? I mean, how, if someone else a month from now starts to encounter the same questions that you had, what advice would you have for them? Oh, I, I don't keep a lid on it or should they talk about it? I mean, what, what would you do? I don't think I have good advice in that regard. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a loner. I really don't have a lot of friends. My wife reminds me of that a lot. Um, (laughs) and you know, to me having a few good friends, like I would say of my very close friends, most of them are aware of these things, but very few of them agree 100% with you. And uh, I think that just because I'm wrong doesn't mean, or just because people don't agree with me doesn't mean I'm right or that I'm a hero or that I'm special. It just means, yeah. it could mean that I'm right, but it could also mean that I'm wrong. Right. And um, I guess what matters to me is my relationship with God and whether or not I feel like, I I feel like God inspires me through what I call righteous curiosity. I feel like he plants ideas. When I, if you have to learn something and you don't care about it, it's some class you're taking at school, it's drudgery, right? That's really hard to do. But the second you have a legitimate interest in it, you really want to know it's uh, it's, it's enjoyable to look. And so I feel like God continues to bless me with um, curiosity in things that he's guiding me down a path based on that. And I'm thankful for that because I feel like it, it, it enhances and strengthens my relationship with him. Okay. One of the people in the community that submitted a question asked, um, are you ever going to do a study or an episode on Emma and her relationship with the leadership of the church? You covered a little bit of that in the Brigham versus Joseph one, right? Yeah. I probably won't do anything beyond what I've done. It's a, it's hard when, when information is available, that's different from when it's super hard to get. So when I found out that the Brigham had bought up all of the copies of Lucy Max Smith's uh, memoir, the, the, what she wrote about her son, and something else got published subsequently, like if it's super hard to get at the content, that's all, they're, they're, to me there's still interesting things to look at that aren't super limited by lack of availability of information. So some, sometimes just in, in yeah. ability to access stuff is enough of a deterrent that right. it makes it hard. And one of the reasons why that might be so hard to access is that, you know, Brigham Young and the Latter-day Saints Millennial Star 27 versus six or page 657. 
he says, it should be gathered up, referring to Lucy Mack's book, it should be gathered up and destroyed so that no copies should be left. We do not wish such a book to be lying on our shelves to be taken up in after years and read by our children as a true history. It is transmitting lies to posterity. We know that the curse of God will rest upon everyone who keeps these books for his children to learn and to believe in the lies. That's an example of censorship, book burning, right? Do you agree that there's ever a time and a place to take those measures? No, I don't think so. I think if it's a bad book, people would ignore it. But I think that I, I had no idea of the level of control, manipulation, and fear that Brigham employed to control um, the narrative as well as people. And that's part of what I think it's important that people understand. I was looking, I was reading something last night that had a footnote um, that referenced a Deseret News article in like 1897. So it was a specific day and I went to look for it and it looked like it was a bi-weekly publication schedule, I think. I think the one before that, it was something that I want to say Wilford Woodward, one of the presidents of the church at the time, um, had said it was a prophecy that hadn't come true. When I went to the BYU website, which is where I go for Deseret News, old old copies of the Deseret News, um, it wasn't there. That one week, that one edition wasn't there. So do I know that it was intentionally withheld from publication because it has an inconvenient truth in it? I don't know that. But I've come across enough instances of key pieces um, uh, you know, probably the, the, what the June 15th, uh, times and seasons, times and seasons. Is, 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 is an example of that, right? Yeah. Uh, in 1844, enough of those to make me think that it's not just random when uh, a key piece is missing. And so those are difficult. Um, I mean, there were things when I was doing, so I spent a year as a researcher in the correlation department and I had access to certain things. So I would go into, um, the, church history library and I would get microfish reels of uh, bishops uh, bishops reports for things. I was looking for information on tithing and how tithing was affected by the um, tithing receipts were affected by the, um, the great depression. Access uh, and availability of information is, is also an issue in terms of being able to, to pursue some of these topics that would otherwise be of interest. Sure. Yeah. Do you think that the day will come that the church would put everything out as available to inspect? I would hope so, but... For example, there's some journals from William Clayton, et cetera, that are still sort of unknown. I would hope so. I would yep. hope so, but I... Um, yeah. yeah, I would hope. Yeah, I would too. All right, so um, a couple more questions from the audience that submitted this, this coming week, um, this last week. Were you much of a student of LDS history before you started seeing these things? No, no. In fact, when we lived in uh, Michigan, I taught early morning seminary for a year as my calling. And uh, the Doctrine and Covenants Church History was the topic that year. And, you know, I think about the, the, the poor students that had to sit through those lessons. I, I had really no sense for church history at that time. And I went to the church history sites in like uh, in Kirtland and uh, we went up to uh, see things in New York. So I had a vague sense, you know, kind of of the, 
the geographic progression as you move from New York to Ohio um, yeah. and understood that, you know, they had gone to Nauvoo, but it wasn't, it wasn't real to me until I had a desire to really understand, Hey, what's, what, what is this about potentially Joseph Smith, not being a polygamist? That was interesting enough that then I cared and, and the details mattered. Awesome. Do you, um, do you have a quote unquote testimony and of what? Oh, these days. Yeah. I feel like I was blessed when I was 15. The Lord gave me, blessed me with a very strong testimony of his existence and of the, the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Um, and I fully believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And I believe that the church entered into a period of apostasy under Brigham Young and that we've been slowly purifying ourselves of those things since and that the church has much goodness now, but that God will gather his people and, um, and make Zion happen uh, with the good people of the earth. And some of those people, I believe, will be LDS. But I don't, I don't think of myself as more righteous than any other member of the church. And I'm not just saying that to be self-effacing. I literally believe that there are many, many dedicated and true followers of Jesus Christ. But I also believe that Jesus Christ inspires his followers to pursue truth at any cost. At any cost. What are some of those costs that you're aware of that are listed in the pursuit of truth? Huh. Well, For example, we have, we have a, a term, somebody got Matthew 10, <laughs> which refers to, you know, I have not come to set a, or to send a, send a, I have not come to send peace, but to send a sword. And you've got fathers against sons, mothers against daughter-in-law. I mean, Jesus explains that, hey, this is not always going to be an easy path, this pursuit of truth, right? What are some of the sacrifices that are required for people that go down the path of wanting the absolute truth no matter what? I think the Lord laid out the consequences, the potential consequences, uh, when he talked about alienation from family members. And I think that, um, you know, seeing disappointment in the face of those that you love. I think the hardest for me was seeing that disappointment in the face of my parents. Um, and I think that over time uh, that's dissipated. I do feel like they love me, but they do feel like I'm misguided. And uh, that, that, that was initially very hard to see that disappointment in their face, um, disappointment in love. Um, but honestly, I feel like God... He fills in those gaps, that hurt, that pain. That is what he paid for in Gethsemane. And he fills those hurts with love. Unless I want to hold on to and maintain that hurt, he will take it and he will fill it with more. And I feel, I feel that the atonement is real and I feel its effects in my life now and on a daily basis. And I I think that's why Joseph Smith matters. Remember those old uh, tapes that Truman Madsen did about Joseph Smith? He said something that stuck with me, and that was that he cared about Joseph Smith because he was a window into the Savior. And that's that, I echo that same sentiment, that 
This is all about the Lord and things that can help us understand him, his ways, and how to draw closer to him more readily. And that's why any of this matters. This pursuit of the truth that you're on, you're doing the best you can, right? You don't know everything. You would never admit sure. that you, you know, you're, you're on a journey, I think, like most of us. Is that a selfish journey? Or is there any benefit to your wife and your children that you're trying to leave as part of a legacy for their benefit as well in, in this stuff that you're doing? If we're right, then it's a legacy uh, that's a blessing. And if we're wrong, you know, we've, we've caused um, a, lot of, a lot of problems. So um, I, think that, I think the turning point for me in a lot of this, I consider myself to be uh, a, and to have been an avid student of the Book of Mormon. I feel like I, I would rarely come across somebody that you know knew the scriptures as well as I did, and and sure that's you know I could feel prideful about that, right? But I think it was when I worked at the church, and based on the things that I saw, I was willing to consider things that I hadn't before, and that was I finally realized that the Book of Mormon was talking to us as a people and not about other people, and that's what my time at the church allowed me to consider. And once I realized that it was there in the Book of Mormon the whole time and I hadn't seen it, that bolstered my confidence and my willingness to share things because um, that, that's not a normal book. And uh, that was an important turning point for me in recognizing what the Lord was trying to teach. What are some of your biggest questions you have that are still lingering for you? You know, we have that, that thing where, hey, just put it on the shelf for now. Yeah. One day God will sort that out. What are some of your biggest questions on the shelf, so to speak? Um, you know, what I was doing 50,000 years ago. <laughs> um, the nature of eternal progression. I think that's the that's the biggest pending question I have right now. And and you know what will I be doing 50,000 years from now? What does that look like? And those are the big questions I have right now. Yeah. Yeah, I'd imagine every just about every human being has probably thought about some of those things. So um well this has been fantastic. Rob, we we super we're super excited to have you on the show and we appreciate you taking the time to come here all these microphones set up and cameras and, you know, um, for people who want to learn more about Rob and his journey and, and, and his projects as well, he's got six documentary videos so far, and those are found on Rob Fotheringham YouTube channel. That's spelled R-O-B-F-O-T-H-E-R-I-N-G-H-A-M, right? So just look up Rob Fotheringham with an O on Fotheringham, um, and you'll find a lot of his work there. And he does a, you know, one of the things that I like about Rob the most, you can see, you know, he's, he's, unassuming he's, he's not trying to create a movement he's not trying to create a church um, he just wants to get at the truth what the heck happened and i think he's put a lot of energy and time into that and i do appreciate that he's he cites sources your presentations are 
99% source material. You show it, you show the quotes, you show the citations there, and you do a good job at letting people find those sources for themselves. And so we appreciate that. So Thanks. if you're interested in those types of presentations, um, find Rob Fotheringham on YouTube, subscribe to his channel. And um, Rob, again, thanks for being here. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. All right. If you like this show, share it with your people. Join the conversation on Facebook, YouTube, or HemlockKnots.com, where you'll find show notes and source material for these subjects and much, much more.